So we're going to be uh, looking at the last verse in the book of Jonah, which is verse 17, and then we're going to read verses uh, 1 to 9 in chapter 2. So the last verse of chapter 1, which is verse 17, and then verses 1 to 9 as we continue with the book of Jonah. So if you would turn to that book. Jonah in chapter 1, just the last verse, and then the uh, last verses, or the first nine verses of chapter 2. And we saw uh, a few weeks ago how God moves in a mysterious way, and then finally we saw how God chose to reveal himself to these heathens, sailors who had no knowledge of God, they know nothing, knew nothing absolutely about God except what Jonah told them, that he is the creator of heaven and earth, that the storm would only stop when finally he would be thrown into the sea. And it was that where, that's where we left off, how God chose to reveal himself to these pagans. And it's a wonderful thing when we receive that revelation, when finally we understand who God is. And not because we're better than anyone else, but because God opens our minds. And he causes us to see how great he is and who Christ is, our Savior, our Lord. That revelation is life-changing. It transforms us. Every time we come to understand a bit more about the Lord, a bit more about his grace, about his love, about his justice, his righteousness, we become enthralled with him. God is not a stagnant uh, entity. He is... uh, He is the sustainer of all life, and in him is all of life. He is life, right? And because he is life, he alone can make us live. And we can receive a revelation of who he is by his miraculous intervention. He chooses to reveal that. And that's what happened to those sailors. God chose to reveal himself to these men who were basically pagans who had no knowledge of God, and God saves them because that was his will. And that's what we saw um, three weeks ago. Today we're going to be looking at the prayer that Jonah lifts up from this very unusual place, the belly of the sea creature. And we're going to see what kind of a prayer it is. So please read with me. Jonah chapter 1, last verse, 17, and then from chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 to verse 9. And the Lord designated a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I called for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice, for you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current flowed around me. All your breakers and waves passed over me. And so I said, I have been cast out of your sight, And nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The deep flowed around me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I descended to the base of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, Lord my God, while I was fainting away. I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And those who are followers of worthless idols abandon their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord." We bless you, we thank you 
O Lord, our God, for indeed salvation is from you. Not from technology, not from science, not from medicine, but only from you. You save us from the wrath that is to come. You save us from eternal damnation. Yes, you alone are the Savior in this world. And we, for this, we are so grateful. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. Now, as we look at this prayer that Jonah lifts to the Lord while in the belly of the sea creature, what stands out are the attributes of God. What are attributes? It's the, those traits that are divine, that are pertain to God. So, for example, one attribute of God is his holiness, right? That God is without sin. His holiness is such that even the angels themselves, who are holy, cannot even match the holiness of God. God's holiness creates a discomfort in the angels themselves. And as I've often said, if angels were to appear today, we ourselves would be uncomfortable with an angel. Imagine being in the presence of God. God is holy. Another trait or another attribute of God is God's omniscience or that God knows all things. That pertains only to God. No other creature has that. Uh, God is omnipresent, another attribute, and so forth. These are traits. These are attributes of God. So what stands out in this prayer are God's attributes. And in a way, we could learn from Jonah's prayer. We can pray acknowledging God's attributes while we pray. Oftentimes, uh, prayers can come across along these lines. Oh, Lord, I need this. Oh, God, please help me with this. And I need this other thing. And they're valid requests. But that is an infantile way of praying, and that's okay for a newborn believer. But when we grow in grace, we begin to acknowledge other aspects of prayer, such as attributes of God. Our Father begins with that. Our Father, right, who is in heaven, hallowed, sanctified, set apart, is your name. What does the Lord teach his disciples? The first thing is to acknowledge his attributes. Which attribute is highlighted there in the our Father? First, his paternity, our Father. Second, his abode, our Father in heaven. Hallowed means may your name be set apart. Therefore, the holiness, the sanctity, the distinctiveness, the transcendence of the name of God. It starts with his attributes. Before any request is brought out, it begins with the attributes of God. And what stands out in Jonah's prayer are the attributes of the Lord. First thing Jonah highlights is the lordship of God. In the Shema, which is the prayer that the Jewish people always remember, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God. Yahweh your God, your Adonai. Yahweh your Elohim. Yahweh, the supreme being, this name that could not be written down, holy and distinct from all other names. He is God. Therefore, the attributes of God are first mentioned. In the Ten Commandments, we have again, I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. He begins with the Lordship. And so what you notice here is first is God is mentioned as Lord. Once Jonah was cast into the sea by the sailors, he probably thought, that's it. My life is over. My days are numbered. I'm going to die. And Jonah absolutely wanted nothing to do with the mission that God had given him. Between the mission and death, Jonah opted 
for death. He would rather die. Why? Because he was stubborn. When people choose death over life, uh, death over their future, because they think their future is miserable and, and nothing is there waiting for them and no one wants them and, and life is not worth living and so forth, it's because they are stubbornly set in their ways. Right? Anyone who takes away his life doesn't see beyond his pain. And Jonah was in that state. He just wanted to end it all because he felt his mission was unbearable. I'd rather die than uh, go to Nineveh. It was out of the question for him to go to this place, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. But in, so in reality, there was a, a great deal of fight left in Jonah. In other words, there was a great deal of resistance. And that's our hearts, by the way. Man is resistant in his sinful state. That's why in the book of Ezekiel we're told that the heart of man is like a stone. It's unbreakable. It's hard. Hard to God's ways. Hard to God's will. Hardened to God's voice. Hard. That's why the Bible is unattractive to a man whose heart is hard. That's why God's word is unacceptable that God's ways are uh, beyond their understanding. We have a hardened heart in our sinful state. That was Jonah at that point. But one of the things that surprises me the most about God, because he is Lord, is to what lengths he is willing to go with those who belong to him. It amazes me to see how resolute God is in winning over a discouraged servant. An unwilling servant, a stubborn servant, a fearful servant, a self-willed servant. I've been in some of the moments of my life, such, such, in such cases, a fearful servant, or I've been discouraged, or I've been unwilling. And I've noticed how God worked in my life because he is resolute. God stops at nothing. Whether it be a Moses who asks God, Send someone else to Pharaoh, not me. I can't even speak. I can't put two words together. I stammer. Or an Elijah that flees while Jezebel hunts him through the land of Israel and flees from his mission. Or a Gideon that is fearful and says, look, I can't fight the Midianites. They're fearsome warriors. Who am I? I'm the least of my tribe, and my tribe is the least of the people of God. I'm from Manasseh. Nothing good comes from Manasseh. Or Paul, that refuses to believe that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. Or a Jonah, that flat out says no to God for the mission that was given to him. God is resolute and will bend those who are his to his way. God is Lord of their lives. And he knows how to break hardened hearts. How wonderful. When you look at your own heart, I look at my heart. If we're not for the grace of God, if we're not for the fact that he is Lord, today I would not be standing here. Today I would not be singing with you. Today I would not be praying with you. I would be doing other things. I remember as a teenager, I'd say, when I finally grow up, church will be the last place I'll ever put my foot in. Because I'd go to church frequently throughout the week with my parents, and I hated it, right? But God breaks hearts and brings them to the point that they are soft, malleable, and they yield to him. Now, servants who defy their master deserve to die. And Jonah had defied his master, his Lord, and servants who disobey deserve severe punishment. And such should have been the case for this servant. He should have died. But oh, how patient is our God. What he determines will take place. Psalm 33, verse 10. The Lord nullifies the plan of nations. He frustrates the plans of people. The plan of the Lord stands forever. Jonah 
first tried to, to go for his getaway in Tarshish. Then he said, okay, let me die. Let's just get rid of this once and for all. But God's plan stands forever. Jonah was thinking, my days are over, but I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. So what does God do? Because he is Lord, he prepares a sea creature, a special fish for his stubborn servant. The other day I was listening to um, this documentary, a very brief documentary by a marine biologist who was saying how they had discovered a new fish, a new species that had never before been found. And uh, it was translucent, by the way. Imagine a translucent fish. I don't know how it works. But, you know, they were trying to, here and there, show a little clip of this fish. And sure enough, you had a hard time. It just was just this thing. You could see through it. It was very unique. Well, God had a special fish appointed for this occasion. Now, some will ask, can a fish swallow a human being? Well, that's the wrong question. The right question is, can God create a fish that can swallow a human being? That's the right question. In June of last year, you may have read about this, a humpback whale, one of the largest mammals, right, had the unfortunate experience of almost swallowing a man. This was off of Massachusetts. There was a guy there by the name of Michael, Michael Packard. He was a lobster diver, diving for lobsters while his uh, uh, mate was uh, on the boat, and so he would go down for lobsters and come back out. At a certain point, everything becomes dark, and he's in the mouth of a humpback whale. And uh, he goes, that's it, I'm, I'm dead. I'm not going to come out of this. Is he going to swallow me or what? These were the thoughts running through his head. And he thought he was going to die. He stayed there 30 seconds in the mouth. According to marine biologists, a humpback whale, as large as it is, cannot swallow the size of a man. Can't. Can swallow smaller fish, but not big enough to swallow a man. 30 seconds, and he thought he was going to die. Now, what is the difference between this experience and Jonah's? Well, Jonah ended up in the belly of the fish. It just didn't end up in the mouth of the fish, in the belly. And there he stayed for three days. He swallowed this, this, and you can't say it was an unfortunate creature because that's the reason God raised up this creature, to swallow Jonah. And you say, how could that happen? Well, if, tell me something. Can a donkey speak? Can a donkey say words? But yet in Scripture we read that Balaam's donkey spoke, right? Is there anything too difficult for God? Take any small thing that makes sense to you, anything. For example, the fact that you can plant a seed and it comes back as a plant, you say, wow, that makes sense. Really, it makes sense? Please explain to me the principle of life. Please. You've heard of... uh, they found seeds in um, pyramids, right? They took the same seed over 4,000 years old, planted it into the ground. What happened? It came back as a plant. The seed over 4,000 years old planted in the ground, and out comes a plant. It germinates, and there's a beautiful plant. Why? Because of the life principle that's within a seed. Now, You know that scientists can reproduce a seed. They can clone a seed. They can manufacture a seed. But you take that same seed manufactured in a lab and place it in the ground, and you know what happens? Nothing. (laughs) It's nothing. Because the life principle is missing from it. So explain to me the life principle of a seed. That's impossible. We just take it for granted. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, that makes sense. Really? That makes sense? What makes sense? Everything around us is a miracle. Everything, because God sustains it. And so if God so chooses to prepare a fish that would swallow his servant, that was because he is Lord and he can do it. First thing, he is Lord. Secondly, Jonah highlights the mercy of God. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2, then Jonah prayed 
to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I called for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. Disobedience breeds prayerlessness. When we are in a state of rebellion, we do not pray. Right? We can't pray. When David was um, disobeying the Lord by having this adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and orchestrated the murder of her husband and tried to cover it up, the whole thing, that period, some say it lasted over nine months, around there, you know, that period was a a period of prayerlessness. When we live in a state of disobedience, we don't pray. We don't seek the Lord. And his word doesn't speak to us. The Bible becomes a closed book. It's a mysterious thing. This is the phenomenon of Scripture. It shuts itself to a rebellious heart, and it opens itself up to a humble heart. That's God's word. And the same with prayer. When we disobey, we are not praying. Jonah wasn't praying. He wasn't speaking to the God from the time he heard what his mission was when he was there in Israel and God told him, go to the Ninevites, go to Nineveh and speak against that city. From that moment when he heard his mission to this moment when he now he's in the belly of the sea creature, Jonah had never prayed. Days had passed. He had not prayed. And that's so uncharacteristic of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was a man after God's own heart. Jonah loved the Lord. And Jonah wanted, more than anything else, fellowship with God. You see, prophets were not popular people. They, people didn't want to hear prophets. They usually had this message of doom that accompanied their lives. And so they were shunned. You know, I don't want to see Jonah, really, because when he comes around, you know, I don't know what he's going to say. I'd rather let him stay there. When I need him, I'll go to him. It's like, who wants to see his dentist, you know, right? We don't want to see our dentist because we'd rather not see our dentist unless we have to see our dentist. A prophet was shunned by God's people. But the prophet knew there was one person who never shunned him. It was God. The prophet enjoyed this relationship with God. He enjoyed praying. But Jonah was in a state of disobedience. And in the state of disobedience, he did not pray. When disobedience takes over our lives, we do not seek his face. We are bent on doing things our own way. And prayer becomes unappealing. And we resist turning to God in prayer. Listen to David's words as he invites us to consider the condition needed if we are to pray. In Psalm 66, verses 16 to 20, he says, Come. So he invites us. Come. And hear all who fear God. And I will tell of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was exalted with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. That's the condition. But God has heard. He has given attention to the sound of my prayer Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer nor his favor from me. In other words, if I hold on to my sin, God will not hear. In the book of Isaiah, it says, Your sins have removed you from me so that your prayers are not heard. Sin cherished, sin kept inside of us, prevents us from praying and prevents God from hearing us. In a state of rebellion... Jonah could not pray, but when a heart is broken and is humbled, when it's finally surrendered to God's will, God will bend his ear and pray and listen to that prayer. Because a broken heart, a contrite spirit, God will not despise. So after three days in the belly of the sea creature, with seaweed wrapped around his head, it says here, and bathing in stomach juices, He should have died. Jonah's finally broken, and he prays, and he prays to the Lord his God, and God was merciful once again. Jonah discovers 
the mercy of God in the belly of the sea creature. Notice verse 2 says that he was in the depths of Sheol. Now, Sheol is the place of the dead. But he wasn't in Sheol. He was in the doorway of Sheol. That's what it means. He was close to dying. And in that moment, as he's close to dying, in a place of helplessness, he cries out to God. Now, some scholars say that Jonah did die, and that after three days, God brought him uh, back to life, like he did with Lazarus and others. We know that in Scripture. But I tend to think that Jonah did not die. Otherwise, he would not have understood his state. He would not have understood that he was wrapped with seaweed and swimming in stomach juices and God was just preserving him in that state. And then finally, in that moment of helplessness and brokenness, he cries out to God, and God hears his prayer. Now, notice that God hears my prayer. Now, this is what most people say. God is not listening to me when it comes to prayer. I've heard that said often. I myself at times have said this. Now I say it no more. God's children should never say those words, ever. First of all, the very fact that he listens to us is an honor in and of itself. If God were to refuse every request from here on in until I pass away and enter glory, God has done much more than I ever asked him for. Much more. Now you might say, no, that's not the case for me. I'm going through a very hard time. Again, it's myopic vision. It's myopic vision. We just see one thing and we're caught up with that thing and obsessed with that very issue. God has done much more for us than we could ever imagine. The blessings that we've received in Christ far outweigh the blessings any of God's people ever received in the Old Testament. That is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. We don't have to ever pray, Lord, bless us, because we have been supremely blessed. God hears our prayers, the prayers of his people. It doesn't mean that he <clears throat> accommodates our requests. It doesn't mean that he'll say yes to the very request we're saying to him. Rather, rather, he gives ear to our voice. God hears the children's cry. And the fact that he hears is in and of itself an awesome privilege. God hearing our voice is more important than God saying yes. He's not a genie in the lamp that I can rub and he affords me three wishes. That's not God. That's not God at all. God doesn't say yes to everything we ask for, but he does hear our cry. He pays attention. We don't know how to pray, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. He says now, in verse 26, now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. What is our weakness? This is it. For we do not know what to pray for as we should. So we are in a certain situation, and we are praying based on our understanding and our mental frame of mind. We see things a certain way, and we're saying, Lord, do this. Undo this. Change this. And, and <clears throat> many times God hears, but he doesn't accommodate. He doesn't allow that prayer to go through. Thankfully, the Spirit is there, and the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So the Spirit of God, who dwells in the, in the life of God's children, is also praying. Isn't that wonderful to know that our Lord intercedes at the right hand of God? That means he represents us. But then we have the Holy Spirit who dwells the believer and intercedes with groanings that cannot be uttered. So in other words, I do not even know what to utter. I do not know how to craft the prayer. I don't know how to pray, but the Spirit is praying on my behalf. And he who searches the heart, as it says here, which is the Father, searches the hearts, knows what? Not your request simply, but the mind of the Spirit. Knows the mind of the Spirit. Therefore, you see here the triune God at work. You see the God who is aware of my prayer. Jesus who intercedes at the right hand, representing me. Therefore saying, he is mine. And the Holy Spirit who is praying within me 
and makes known the will of God, or the request, rather, according to the will of God, and the Lord hears that prayer. And because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, if Jonah had received a yes to his prayer, what would it have been? A, I want to go for my getaway, Tarshish. I want to go for my mini vacation. Or B, let me go back home. Or C, please don't let me go to Nineveh, send someone else. That would have been his three requests, right? And worst case scenario, D, let me die. Those would have been his requests. But he surrenders to the will of God because he realizes that God is merciful. Notice verse 9, that which I vowed I will pay. What does that mean? What, what vow did he make? We don't read of any vow in the first chapter. Which vow? The vow he took when he was anointed as prophet. The vow of serving God, of not being his own person, of not choosing his life and his path and not making his own decisions, that he would obey God. He vowed that vow as a prophet. Servants of God make a vow, just like a husband makes a vow or a wife makes a vow on their wedding day. He says, that which I vowed, I've broken my vow by running away and doing my thing. I will pay my vow. He understands that God is merciful towards him. God is sovereign. He sees the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 3. For you threw me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current flowed around me. All your breakers and waves passed over me. That experience that he was going through, he attributes it to God. He doesn't say, oh, the sailors threw me into the deep. Doesn't say that at all. He doesn't even mention the sailors at all. Isn't that strange? One of the most precious doctrines in all of Scripture is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. This doctrine simply states that God does what He pleases, and none of His purposes will ever be thwarted. No one can change God's plans. Even when evil seems to have the upper hand, God in a moment can undo the works of darkness and bring about his perfect will. The wonderful thing about the sovereignty of God is that he can use evil to accomplish his purpose. And in this verse, as I just mentioned, Jonah speaks about God throwing him into the sea. Now, we all know the text in chapter 1 says, as we read in verse 17, or 16 rather, that the sailors finally threw Jonah into the sea. And yet Jonah says it was God. So what is it? Is it God or is it the sailors? Who threw Jonah into the sea? Well, from the human perspective, it was the sailors. But from divine perspective, it was God. Look at the situation you're in right now. Is that situation which is uncomfortable, that situation that is unpleasant, is it God or is it certain individuals that have placed you in that situation? Our tendency is to blame others for what is happening to us. We try to pin the fault, the blame on someone who has done us some wrong. But Jonah understands God's sovereignty. We see the same scenario being played out in the crucifixion of Christ. At the cross, we see human responsibility and God's sovereignty working hand in hand. Peter highlights this truth in his message found in Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, speaking about Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. So you, you the Jewish leaders, you did this. You plotted together, working with Judas, Working with others, you made sure that Jesus was crucified by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. You did this, but notice the first part of the verse. 
delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, working hand in hand. How does it work hand in hand? Because God sovereignly orchestrates events and makes them happen while we are free to do as we choose. He allows your free will to come into play, but at the end, his will is accomplished. And if you examine this verse, it's really comforting. Because if we just look at the world events today and just see, you know, a war in Ukraine, gas prices skyrocketing, and we look at the future and we're in dismay and we say, what's going to happen? We just park our lives in fear and dismay and nothing more. But if we look around and say, yes, this is happening in Ukraine. Yes, the gas prices are skyrocketing. Yes, we don't know how the future will unfold. There is uncertainty. Yes, yes to all of it. But over it all, the Lord rules. He is sovereign. As a child of God, nothing happens to you by chance. Nothing underscore that. At times, people can even plot against you, hurt you, do, betray you, do awful things. And yet, if you're a child of God, you have nothing to fear. You will not allow evil to triumph. At the end, God will take that which was meant for your harm and turn it into good. If you don't believe in this truth, you will live in fear. You will be anxious constantly and you will um, look at the future with dismay. God's sovereignty is such a liberating truth. At least it was for me. Because I was a very fearful young man going into uh, growing up and just always anxious. And the Lord has delivered me from many moments of anxiety because this truth was revealed to me in those moments of pain and suffering. If you look at the life of Joseph, I've mentioned this before. Joseph was a man who was betrayed by his own brothers and then sold off to, uh, by, by, by his brothers to, to Midianites who brought him all the way to Egypt and then there he becomes a slave. This man, remember, he was the favored son of Joseph. He always wore the best robe. He was uh, daddy's son. And now here is a slave in a faraway land, then falsely accused and ends up in prison. And at the end, you would think he was bitter and he's saying, why did my brothers do this? Why did they betray me? But this is what he says to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't, he doesn't syrup the truth. He doesn't say, he doesn't gloss it over and, or hides it under the rug. No, he goes, you meant evil against me. There's no question about it. You wanted to hurt me. But God meant it for good. That's why we see Joseph never falling apart. That's why we see Joseph doesn't, he doesn't pity himself. He just trusts the Lord. Because when we understand God's sovereignty, you trust him. Even as the boat is rocking, <laughs> even as your life is in shambles, he says, I'm trusting you, Lord. And no one, in my life at least, has ever um, exemplified this trust better than my mom. My mom went through one painful event after another painful event. And I, at times, I would see her crying, Lord, I don't understand. Lord, I don't understand. Why is this happening? Whether it be financial, whether it be because of the relationship in the house, whether it be because of situations back home in Italy, whether so many things, that have awful things that have happened in her home, and I would see her crying. At the end, she would say, Lord, I thank you because I'm yours. You saved me. I trust you. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's what it means to trust, to believe in this truth. God is sovereign. Fourthly, he saw God's justice. God is just. Look at verses 4 to 6. So I said, I've been cast out of your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. Again, you see that it's to the point of death, right? He didn't die. 
The deep floor around me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. I descended to the base of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. In other words, I was shut in. I was helplessly shut into this situation, and I could not get out of it. What is Elijah, Jonah highlighting here? He's highlighting God's hand of correction. God is merciful, but he corrects. God is merciful, but he's just. God is merciful, but he's righteous. God is merciful, but he doesn't allow us to escape consequences. God brought pain into the life of Jonah. And Jonah understood why that pain came into his life. It was because of his disobedience. Disobedience in the life of a believer has consequences. David understood that. Solomon understood that. And here we see Jonah understood that. Jonah speaks of water encompassing him, of seaweed wrapping around his head, of being cast away from God's presence. Therefore, he lost that fellowship with God. All of these are manifestations of God's hand of correction in the life of his servant. And when we sin, God's hand of correction enters into our lives. And he disciplines us. And it hurts. It hurts when God disciplines us. It's not just a little slap on the hand. It hurts. And Jonah is acknowledging that God is just in his dealings with him. He realizes that he deserves far more in terms of punishment and that God only gave him a portion of what he deserves. Now, the portion that he gives hurts. The portion that God gives us when we sin hurts us. But he's still giving us far less than what we deserve. Psalm 103 reminds us of this. Psalm 103 verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our guilty deeds. What did Jonah deserve? He deserved punishment to the full, death, and complete removal from God's presence. He deserved hell. God corrects us when we sin, but he gives us far less than we deserve. If he were to punish us according to our sins, where would we be? Look at the people of Israel. In Judah in particular, Judah was still the last remaining tribe that was more or less faithful to God. But they eventually became idol worshipers and disobedient, and they would only play the part. I've told you this many times before. And then finally, God has the Babylonians come in, take them captive, destroys everything. The temple is ransacked and then raised to the ground. Nothing is left, not stone upon stone. Nothing. They got all of this. And then after 70 years, some of them go back because God said, now you can go back. Not all, but a good number went back. And then while they're back, Ezra prays this prayer in the presence of those who were the exiles, those who had come back from Babylon after 70 years, 80 years, and they're back in the land that God had originally given to them. And he prays this prayer and he says, after everything that has come upon us for our evil deeds. In other words, all of it. We've deserved it. And our great guilt, he goes, our guilt is great. Our deeds are awful. They're sinful. Since you, our God, have spared us. Now, how did God spare? Notice, by inflicting less than our wrongdoings deserve. Read it again. By inflicting less than our wrongdoing deserve. And have given us such an escaped remnant as this. There's a group of us still here. You've done this. You've spared us. You've given us far less in punishment than we deserve. Did God's people go into captivity? Yes. Were they slaves in a faraway land for over 70 years? Yes. Were their homes destroyed? Yes. Were the vineyards they so cherished destroyed? Yes. Was the temple raised to the ground? Yes. Was all the gold and silver ransacked and removed? Yes. All of it, yes. Were their children taken and no longer able to marry but were made slaves? Yes. And yet, 
that was far less, far less, far less than what they deserved. Yes, as the psalmist reminds us, if you, Lord, were to keep account of guilty deeds, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? Read Deuteronomy chapter 28. We read it together this past Tuesday at prayer. And you will read, if God's people were to break the covenant, which they did, this is what's going to happen to you. And there's one curse after another curse, after another curse, after another curse, and another curse. Curse after curse after curse after curse would come upon his people. And they said, no, no. We understand, we get it, we get it. <laughs> they didn't get it. And did God fulfill all of that? Did he give them all of that? No, he didn't. He gave them far less than what they deserved. That is amazing. That is an amazing God. God is merciful, but he is also just. He will not wink at sin. So we've seen that God is Lord. That is what is highlighted in Jonah's prayer. That God is merciful, that God is sovereign, and that God is just. And finally, God's kindness. God's kindness in verses 6 and 7, where we read in his prayer, But you have brought up my life from the pit, Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. God's kindness. Here, finally, Jonah highlights God's intervention in his life. Remember, God's intervention first happened in the mind and in the heart of Jonah. Then the fish vomited him out. Not before. It happened first in his heart. God raised Jonah from the pit of stubbornness, from that state of rebellion, from his moment of self-willed living. He spares him from death and motivates Jonah to pray so that God can intervene in his servant's life. All of it, was, we see God at work. He's like the surgeon that masterfully works his skill in someone who is in a state of peril, this cancer is eating him up. The cancer of rebellion, of self-willedness, of self-centeredness. It's eating his servant up and God brings him on the operating table. And as he operates on his servant, he removes this cancer skillfully and prayer is birth in the heart of a servant that had now become rebellious, that was once serving him, but now he is open to his God and he prays. That's miraculous. Not the fact that he was swallowed by the fish and then was vomited by the fish. Yeah, that's, that's different. Yes, it's miraculous, but not to the same level as this. As God changing a heart. God bringing about surrender bringing about reverence, bringing about obedience. This is all God's doing. You can say that the words of the psalmist found in Psalm 118, verses 17 and 18, were, would become his testimony. And it could become yours. They've been mine many times. Psalm 118, 17 and 18. I will not die, but live. And tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely. Pay attention to these words. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not turned me over to death. Now that is a prayer. That is a prayer. That's a testimony. Each one of God's children can identify with Jonah. Each one of us can say, the Lord has disciplined me but he has not turned me over to death. And maybe you're right now in a state of discipline. Maybe right now there's correction in your life. God is bringing about consequences to disobedience in your life. 
But yet you can say that though as a God's child, though he disciplines you, he will never discipline you to the point that you deserve. He'll discipline you severely, but he will never give you over to death. Death meaning the ultimate death, which is separation from God altogether. He has not turned me over to death. I mean, the psalmist wrote these words eventually died. He's not talking about physical death, right? Why does God keep us alive as his people? Why doesn't he just bring us all to heaven the moment we are saved, the moment we repent, the moment we embrace the gospel? Why does he just, okay, here's one, let's bring them up and let's just take them up one at a time. Why does he still leave us here on earth so that we can declare the works of the Lord and recount the illustrious, the amazing the mind-boggling acts of the Lord so we can spread his fame while we are here on earth. We don't live for self. We live for him. We belong to him to make his name known. That is why we are here. And Jonah finally surrenders to that. He understands it, and he goes, the Lord has saved me from death, and I will live and declare the works of the Lord. May that be the testimony of each one of us here. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful prayer that we skimmed over. We just touched it. And it's such a blessing to me as I read through it. And to the people of God today, I pray that you would take the truths of this prayer and stamp it in each one of our hearts. I thank you, Lord, for how you continue to work in our lives, for the way you are at skillfully working in us so that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. That is the purpose for which we have been saved. And we give you glory for this, Lord. And for those who still are in darkness today, or for those who will be following on whichever platform, I pray that you would draw them to yourself for you alone can regenerate lives and bring people to salvation as you did, O oh Lord, with the sailors and as you changed the, hearts of jo- hearts, the heart of Jonah, do that again with your servants who are in a state of rebellion or self-centeredness. Bring them the point of surrender and brokenness before you. Do that work for your name's sake, O Lord. And this we ask in the precious and glorious name of our Lord. Amen.